We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Alex Andreu, where we try to populate the news matrix for the days ahead. To help me, I have Arthur Snell. Morning, Arthur. Good morning, Alex. Let's start with Ukraine, as we have done for the last few weeks. Does the evidence discovered by Human Rights Watch at Bucha and several other towns and villages move the dial, do you think? Well, I think it certainly moves the dial of public opinion because it's I'm sure everyone listening to this has seen the pictures or has seen bits of these hideous pictures, you know, mass executions of civilians, people with their hands tied behind their backs. I could go on. I probably don't need to. It moves the dial in public opinion terms, but does it move the dial in two really important terms? Does it change the way that Western countries decide to support Ukraine militarily, perhaps giving them more and increasingly powerful weapons? that they can really take the fight to the Russians with? And of course, does it move the dial in terms of sanctions? I think mm. those are two questions which we, we can't yet answer. Okay. W- what's your instinct? I mean, my the feeling in my waters is that it will not move the first one and it will move the second one, but not as far as is probably necessary. What what do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's about right. So the, there's been talk already from both Chancellor of Germany, Schultz, and also Mario Draghi in Italy about how this means that, that Western Europe needs to completely get off reliance on Russian gas. Now, yeah. this has always been a an objective, and it's been talked about as something that we would move towards. But it sounds as though there's going to be an attempt to do that a lot more quickly. And that would that would have a radical impact, because let's not forget, we're still sending billions, billions of, of euros to Russia on a daily basis to pay for energy. So this could change that significantly. And, and that would have a medium term impact on the Russian economy that would be extremely severe. Whether or not that would have an impact on the sort of day to day progress of the conflict is another question. So on, on the weapons, I think there is already some disquiet. You've got France having said they're not sure whether the sort of heavier weapons should go into Ukraine, that it would make NATO a you know a combatant in, in the war. And and then of course you've got others trying to push that more heavily. One of the problems, as has been the case from the start, is that the weapons that the Ukrainians are best placed to use are the ones that are in former Warsaw Pact countries, Mm, those countries mm. bordering Ukraine. But of course, then those countries are the ones most threatened by Russia in in the sort of medium term. So they will then need their own defences reorganised. So it's not straightforward at all. There's also been a little bit of talk about confiscating ships that sail under a Russian flag and or closing ports to them. Do you think that's a realistic 
aim. It might be something that can be done, but of course the flagging of ships, as everyone knows, is is fairly easy to change. You know, the Russian merchant fleet could easily reflag itself as Cypriot or as Liberian or mm-hmm. Marshall Islands or whatever. You know, the so sort of ship registries are a pretty flexible tool these days. My sense is that the the only really serious sanction left is this one on gas gas sales because although the russians could say well fine you know we'll sell our gas to china and india it's it's if they lose this western european market that's going to have a major impact on their economy and that's something that they they can't replace it easily yeah because it lowers the price effectively exactly now back home we learn today from the times that even among that pitiful number of visas issued under the Homes for Ukraine scheme, last I saw, were still only 10% of applications made, and applications made were only 10% of uh, homes being offered. But even on those small numbers, 9 out of 10 refugees that have been granted a visa under the scheme have still not reached the UK. Is the Home Office useless? Is it deliberately wicked or is it both? Well, I'm prepared to believe both. It is clearly useless. Anyone who's had the misfortune to interact with the Home Office on almost any category of activity will know that it is inefficient, it is incompetent, and it's a very, very tough job interacting Mm. with the Home Office. On top of that, I think there is there's a bad faith sort of strain running through this. And let's just go back to the beginning here. This Homes for Ukraine... Yes, of course, it is wonderful if a country decides that it wants to make a gesture on on an individual personal basis. Opening your home to someone is a very, you know, is a very personal, intimate thing to do. And that's brilliant. But what it is also doing is the government washing its hands of an issue, of an issue which, as we already know, the, the question of housing asylum seekers and other people, vulnerable people coming to this country is a disaster. People are put up in in substandard accommodation. You have whole families living in one single hotel room. As it happens, I, I I'm involved with uh, some local refugees here here in Gloucestershire, and and the conditions they're living in is terrible. So mm. this seems to me that the government is saying, fine, let private let private citizens do this. But actually, yeah. it's you know everyone has has had the experience of the overstaying guest. You know, it's very easy for people to feel an outpouring of, of you know, sympathy for, for, for people who've gone through a terrible war. But it is not necessarily that easy to take a family or, or a couple of individuals and have them live with you for a year, you know, yeah. and for that not to be problematic and for there not to be all kinds of other, you know, difficult side effects of that if, if yeah. the government is simply pretending it's not their problem. Yeah, it's, I mean, it seems to me that it's a classic sort of Twitter trolling line, if you love refugees so much, why didn't you take them in your house? It's sort of making that policy. Moving on, but not quite sort of staying on a parallel, in the Hungarian election, now the the Viktor Orban victory was expected. Was its magnitude expected? Well, I think if you look at the opinion polls, Orban had a clear lead, and the Hungarian electoral system is one which, rather like the one in this country, compounds the lead of the largest party. So if you get a small majority, as Orban did in the actual vote, 
you end up with a super majority in Parliament. I suppose, and, and I count myself in this, a lot of people had dared to believe that Orban's evident closeness to Russia at a time when you don't have to look very far for the sort of flaws in that policy would have changed the ways in which Hungarians voted and responded. And the fact that, you know, Orban's friends in the Kremlin were carrying out war crimes, had invaded a sovereign country, which is next door to you, to Ukraine, let's not forget. Yeah. I mean, Hungary is a country that, that is arguably most threatened by these developments. That might change the calculus. But I think that is to forget a few things. One is that Orban's government controls everything in Hungary. They control all public resources. They control basically all of the media. And so if you're an elector, you're, you're subjected to a barrage of pro-Orban propaganda. But you also know that if, if you are in a, in a town or region that has not voted for Orban's uh, setup, then you'll, you'll be starved of funds and investment in, in, your, in your place. So it's not, it's not straightforward and, 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 and not, it's not an un, untrammeled choice for someone mm. to decide to vote against Orban in what is effectively a sort of electoral dictatorship. The dangers of a government that seeks to control the media and, and uh, engages in pork barrel politics yeah. are, I think, something that people should be paying a lot of yes. attention to. Yes, and, and of course, a lot of this may have certain familiarities that, that we can, uh, we can mm. all, all feel. I think the other thing to, to, to recall is that actually, you know, the, the united opposition, so a series of parties had come together, left, right, centre, Basically, that their only thing was to say, we're, we, you know, we're not ideologically aligned, but we we do align on wanting to get Orban out of power. But the candidate they chose, who was this socially conservative, sort of very uh, strict Catholic, had a huge family. On one level, people felt, well, that was a good person who could sort of take the fight to this to this identitarian politics that Orban had brought mm. up. But he was a rather weak candidate. He just didn't perform very well on, on the election trail. So that was another factor which, which probably set against them. Yeah. I mean, I, I would also venture forth the, the axiom that emergency situations, especially security emergency situations, they just favour the incumbent. Yeah. And especially so if this is a a sort of security-oriented right-wing strongman incumbent. Yeah. You know, they, they, they long for crises at their borders because they just favour them. What do you think this will mean for the situation in Ukraine? Orban, even in his victory speech, named Zelensky amongst his enemies. Yes, and that was bizarre because it seems to me that there's no debate about the fact that Orban is close to Putin and has enjoyed Russian support in certain ways, not you know, not not including, of course, the energy supplies. But very strange to target yourself personally against Zelensky when, as far as I could tell, Zelensky is incredibly popular all over Europe, and I imagine that plenty of Hungarians think he's 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 a highly impressive leader. But I suppose what it does show us is that Orbán's political methodology is this intense culture war, it's intense identity politics, and it, he doesn't know how to do anything else. And that's basically what it comes down to, that he doesn't, he doesn't have other ways, he doesn't have other ideas, he doesn't have it in him to reach across the aisle and say, well, we all now need to work together to, you know, to make our country safe at this difficult time. He's mm. only got 
this oppositional approach. So he's anti-Ukraine, he's anti-George Soros. I mean, George Soros, you know, is an ancient, you know, emigre Hungarian who whose whose influence on the country is is probably close to zero now. But it's it's he's just this shibboleth that they can keep attacking. And of course it's mm. It's not not irrelevant that he's Jewish as well, and yet he signed up to sanctions, and that yet he has signed up to the full sort of roster of EU sanctions. Well, he has, although he the one thing he has said which which sets him apart from the others is he won't allow any weapons to pass through yep. Hungary en route to Ukraine, which is which is quite a big big position to take when you know Hungary clearly shares a border with Ukraine, and that might be a very helpful way of getting them in. So you have the EU. On the one hand, there's an absolute compelling objective to show complete unity in the West. On the other hand, they have this mini Putin sort of developing a power base within within their ranks. What 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 does the EU do about this? I think this is a really interesting question because a lot of things felt very different the day before Russia invaded Ukraine. And one of the sort of categories was the way in which the EU handled its authoritarian member states, the ones who basically aren't playing by the rules. And the rules of the club are pretty clear about, you know, the EU only has democracies as members and, you know, press freedoms and certain things that go with that are all part of the EU rulebook. Prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the EU did what it was is always very good at doing, which is muddling through. And I say that as someone who doesn't necessarily look down on that as a system of helping an organisation with nearly 30 members, you know, deal with its agenda. Now that we have seen what an untrammeled authoritarian government can do when left to its own devices for, for you know, two decades... It seems to me that the, the calculus is rather different. And the voices within the EU saying we can't just draw a circle around Hungary and leave them to it and just carry on being the EU everywhere else. We actually have to take serious steps. So yeah. I wonder whether, you know, two things. One is, do you deny resources to Hungary that would normally go to Hungary as a, as a you know, mid middle income uh, member of the club. And the second thing is, you know, certain sorts of sanctions, whether it's, you know, denying Hungary access to certain EU meetings and other fora, or even threatening it with expulsion. Now, I don't know if the EU is ready to go there, but it's certainly more likely to be ready than it was prior to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Now, from the events we observe internationally with horror to events we observe domestically with a different kind of horror, Partygate is back in quite a big (laughs) way. Some details around the fines have started emerging. Is this a problem for Johnson? Or do you think because of the international situation, he's effectively just over the bump and home safe? The strange thing is that I think it's a problem for Johnson 
if you're somebody who is looking at what public opinion says and looking at how the electorate responds to these issues. So I was struck by, um, uh, I was I was driving north on Friday night with the radio on listening to any questions and the way in which the audience there responded to the sort of the, the government sock puppet talking about this mm. was was anger and derision, which, you know, as, as a combination for any politician is pretty difficult. However, Tory MPs have clearly decided that this this is over. Now, I suppose if if there is a big fine on Johnson himself and he can't pretend it hasn't happened, then you know that that will reopen the debate. But it does seem generally the Tory party has decided this is over. Boris Johnson is the hero of Ukraine. You know, we could debate if that's correct or not, but that's that's the framing. You know, these are serious times. We, we don't have time to remove prime ministers on the basis of who went to a party or not. Mm. But as I say, I'm not at all clear that the British public have moved on, that they have forgiven Johnson. So if then if the government has decided to pretend it's gone away, it seems it's very problematic for them anyway. Yes, I think that the, the majority of pollster people tend to agree with you that the political caucus has moved on from the issue rather more quickly than the public have. And considering commons are in recess from this week, and people will begin campaigning for the local elections at the beginning of May, and begin canvassing and knocking on doors, I wonder whether their current nonchalance survives impact with reality. Civil servants cannot publicly defend themselves. Names are being briefed to the press of who's been fined. I mean, why is this happening? Who do you think is briefing names? Well, I think you have to assume it is the political appointees in number 10, who yep. many of whom, of, of course, are, are relatively recent arrivals because there was the big clear out of resignations around the time that this story first sort of opened up. Well, this is a government which has its base in a political movement, the Brexit movement, that has set itself in opposition to civil servants, to this sort of shibboleth of the, the so-called establishment. And it's it's easy to see how how someone like Boris Johnson, obviously loyalty is not is not a word that he's familiar with. So you can drop people in it readily. But I, I don't think this will have any immediate impact. But of course, sooner or later, somebody well known in the political space will have will be fined and their name will emerge and then that will be a much more interesting story than mm. an anonymous civil servant and and that seems to me you know almost inevitable i think it's interesting and i would encourage listeners to have a broad look at which publications have been and still are particularly pushing the story of the party the evening before prince philip's funeral yeah and that is the only party for which Johnson was not in the building. And it's those same publications that are putting out names of civil servants who have been fined and draw your own conclusions on why that is happening. In the same swirl of things, we've had the case of Tory MP David Warburton in really profound trouble in all sorts of ways, from his political career to his mental health, reportedly. Let's not go into the the whys and wherefores 
of this since it is an active investigation and involves someone, by all accounts, vulnerable. What might a by-election mean? I think we will get to a space where there will be a by-election. Could there be a by-election at the same time as the local elections at the beginning of May? And what might, might it mean for Johnson? Well, it's not a great seat to have to have a by-election in if you're if you're the government. So Somerton mm. and Froome, which is you know down in Somerset, it's a seat that in the days when the Liberal Democrats had lots of seats in the southwest of England was a Lib Dem seat. Mm. Uh, they lost it in the big sort of clear out of 2015, and since then, on paper, it looks like a fairly safe Conservative seat. But we we all know what happened in Shropshire, which had never been a Lib Dem seat. We all know that the Lib Dems are very good at fighting by-elections. And particularly in this area, they will have a pretty strong infrastructure, having held the seat for, for I think, uh, uh, more than 10 years in fairly recent times. So mm. I would have thought that if there is a by-election, it's, it's an uphill struggle for the government for that simple reason. Whether or not aligning it with the local elections or, or holding it separately, there'll be political strategists who've got much better idea than I have of sort of where the government might fall down. I think there's a, there's a general view that in the local elections, uh, there aren't that many places with sort of significant Tory sort of holds being contested. And so perhaps if you held the by-election, that would draw more attention to the Tories having a bad day. So, so maybe they'd hold it at a different time. And of course, one doesn't know exactly what decisions the current MP might be making or, or may be made for him if, you know, if his situation uh, defines that. A little bit of trivia for our listeners. The last time the Liberal Democrats held that seat was actually in 2010 to 2015. And the challenger by the Conservatives that failed to gain that seat was none other than Annunciata Rees-Mogg, sister of neighbouring MP Jacob. So may, maybe she could make a return. Uh, you know, she could, of course, she, she flirted with the Brexit party. But she maybe- did. Maybe the Conservatives will will welcome her back into the fold. Yeah, it will be an interesting one to watch. Now, let's very quickly wrap up the rest of the uh, stories that will be talked about in the week ahead. There's an energy pitch coming up by Quasi Kwarteng. We don't entirely know if this is the energy white paper that we have been expecting for some months now. It doesn't look like it. It looks as if it's a, a sort of a, a different broad brush approach to energy security in the future that basically involves a, a, a lot more nuclear plants and, and some more uh, renewables. Is that is that broadly right? Yeah, I think that, that everyone's getting excited with this idea of small scale so-called modular nuclear plants. And the idea is that they are much easier to install and get up and running than these sort of epic projects that such as um, Hinkley Point, you know, which has been built for, for years and years and years and the budget always seems to run over and so on. So small nuclear plants are, are the current vogue. Interestingly, I was talking, a uh, little plug for Doomsday Watch podcast, I was talking to a senior Japanese official for the podcast just last week and he was saying, without any prompting from me, well, Japan's looking at small modular nuclear plants as one of the ways in terms of insulating itself against reliance on 
foreign fossil fuels. So it might be a good idea. You know, I'm always prepared to believe that the Japanese are full of good ideas. But equally, this is innovative technology, which has yet to be sort of fully, um, you know, uh, f- f- fully proven on the ground. And of course, like lots of these things, it's very easy to put in a government paper, well, we're going to have 50 of these little nu- nuclear plants bubbling away. And how practicable that really is, I, I think yes. is open to question. Pop-up nuclear reactors, what could go wrong? I know, um, I know. I mean, And good luck with their NIMBY constituencies indeed, as well, because indeed. everyone will be in favour of it in, in general. but In uh, somewhere uh, else, yes. Yeah. It's only a little one, they say. <laughs> Today also marks Keir Starmer, two years in charge. The aggregate polls at the time his leadership was announced, I I went back and had a look at them. Politico website has a fantastic tool. They do aggregate polling for every single European country. The Conservatives at that point were a solid 21 to 22 points ahead in the polls, and they're now a steady four to five points behind. That has been largely because of Johnson succeeding or failing. Keir Starmer has devoted the first half of his tenure, essentially, to sorting out the internal stuff of the party. How can Labour now start facing outwards? Well, it does seem to me that a a cost-of-living crisis is the sort of thing that if you're from a sort of social democratic political movement ought to be something that you can offer individuals who are facing a really difficult time, a very clear alternative path. But I suppose it's worth just thinking back. Yes, Keir Starmer was uh, elected uh, party leader during the pandemic. You remember the rather odd acceptance speech yeah, yeah. In, in a room. But if you think, let, let's imagine he decided to uh, run you know, at late, late the previous year in 2019, if someone had sat him down and said, well, I've, I've got the crystal ball here and the big issues we're going to be dealing with are a global pandemic and then a major land war in Europe, like, you know, Keir would probably have said, hang on a minute, no, 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 that, you, you're making a mistake there. I only mentioned, yes, exactly. Yes. Yes, yes. Bring back, uh, um, uh, what was she called? Anyway, but um, the only reason I mention that is that those are both things, major global crises are things that, of course, play to the government of the day. In fact, as as you you were talking about earlier in the case of Hungary. So he's had a very, very difficult period albeit he's facing a very, very incompetent government. It, you know, it's a, it's a very strange couple of years he's had. But if, if British politics becomes a bit more conventional and it's about the difficulties that ordinary people have in leading a, a vaguely normal life, then I think that is surely something that the Labour Party is good at dealing with, communicating about, showing an alternative, an alternative offer. Yes, I, I agree. I think I think there are a lot of floating voters out there at the moment who are not sure about the party they voted for last time and they are ready to be grabbed. New no-fault divorce laws come into effect this week in England and Wales, we should note, but the justice system is creaking under the COVID backlog. Raab is in charge. What do we expect? What I hope is that, that this this becomes a non-story because it is in any 
sensible, modern, liberal society, it should be possible for people whose marriages haven't worked out, for those people to be able to end those marriages quickly at, at little cost to themselves and to others. The fact that in general, our justice system, as you know, brilliant people such as the secret barrister who you should all follow on Twitter have, have been able to demonstrate, our justice system simply doesn't work anymore. You know, one of the basic functions of a democratic society is to have a justice system accessible to all. And we don't have that at the moment. It, it, it's, it's a terrible tragedy. Within that context, the question of divorce, whilst important, may not be as important as, you know, serious criminal issues not being dealt with by the justice system. And Dominic Raab is somebody who's super defensive. He doesn't seem to be very competent, but he's very aggressive and angry most of the time. So it, it's not obvious that he's the man to sort these issues. But perhaps making the divorce system easier might relieve some of the pressure on the courts, because I think it means that, that there's less likelihood of this ending up in courts for most normal uh, situations. Mm. Good point. Finally, as we said, the Commons are in recess at the moment, but the Lords have some interesting stuff ahead, including the Building Safety Bill, which may not sound particularly sexy, but it's it's all to do with cladding. And uh, specifically, there's a big battle going on about what what should happen to leaseholders of properties that have this dangerous cladding. So that's one to watch. And we expect uh, some ping pong on the Nationality and Borders Bill. Um, do you think the, the situation in Ukraine and the outpouring of public support for refugees has emboldened the Lords to be a little more assertive on pushing back against Priti Patel's plans? I think it has. And I think the other thing is that Priti Patel herself... I I was always a believer that in in the idea that Priti Patel, you know, not not being particularly uh, fond of her politics, but she was somebody who was politically very astute. But I don't think that's the case, and she is she's lost a lot of support within her own party. Actually, there are plenty of Tories who you know one might not share their their sort of views on various policies who are very you know, dismayed by the government's stance on immigration and, and mm. see it as as sort of cruel and unusual. So I I think that in a way it's it can be helpful to the government to have the Lords sort of force on them certain changes, certain different approaches. They they can kind of blame it on the Lords, but actually basically accept uh, you know, a, a good proportion of of, of the, the, the alterations made. And, and as I say, you know, Priti Patel is not is not somebody who seems to carry much of her party with her anymore. Mm. Yes, it's interesting that uh, Priti Patel, the bullying scandal, was really the first chime of the breaking rules uh, uh, problems that the government was going to have, the retrospect retrofitting rules to allow bad behaviour. Yeah. And, and very much at the time, the implicit explanation that was given was that Priti Patel was doing very important work and should be allowed to continue with it. Well, now it turns out the work she was doing was also shit. <laughs> and she started this trend that has landed their party in trouble. So I, I think it's, I think she, she will be very vulnerable at uh, a coming reshuffle. So you're now ready to start your week. We hope, Arthur Snell. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. If you found this podcast useful, then you can help support us on the funding platform Patreon for just £2 a month. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Every donation keeps us going, and we really appreciate your help. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreu with Arthur Snell. The producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelena Sofronievich, and Alex Rees. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.